What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. An interesting debate about the Green New Deal with the Job Creators Network. That was fascinating, and we've had quite a conversation about that. I'd like to move on from that. I mean, essentially, the, the person I was debating, her argument was Donald Trump is wonderful. He's put the economy on steroids, borrowing a trillion and a half dollars from our children and grandchildren and giving it to the billionaires and the big corporations was just a wonderful thing. But I want to talk about the larger rot, the opposition of the Green New Deal that's coming out now from all these so-called think tanks and, you know, right-wing groups that are funded by fossil fuel billionaires and people like our Pope. The message behind the message is, hey, we're making a hell of a lot of money on fossil fuels. Who cares if it's destroying the planet? We want to keep making the money. And we're loving the $300 billion in, in subsidies that is given every year to the fossil fuel industry in the United States. But that's just the surface, right? That's just the stuff that's at the very top. The Republican Party has turned into, since the election of Ronald Reagan, you know, I don't think Jerry Ford was quite like this. Richard Nixon, yeah, to a large extent. But really the last honorable Republican president, for lack of a better word, was Dwight Eisenhower a relatively straight shooter. A lot of things wrong with the Eisenhower presidency and, and those times. And I mean, you know, we can go through that. But what has really happened since Reagan is that the Republican Party has just turned into a machine to protect inherited wealth, which is about 60 percent of the billionaires in the United States started out with massive inherited wealth and corporate prerogatives deregulation. Yeah, let's poison the air. Let's poison the water. Let's let's deregulate the chemical industry. Yeah, wonderful stuff. And this is destroying our country. We have an entire political party that has sold out to a handful of billionaires and giant corporations. And it is utterly destroying our country. From Trump's cover-ups to climate change to inequality. Now you got Donald Trump pushing a coup in Venezuela. In fact, Michael Fox over at the Independent Media Institute writing on Raw Story, here's the real and terrifying reason Trump is pushing for a coup in Venezuela. On Monday of this week, he was down in Miami and he met with the Venezuelan community. Why? Well, this is uh, what Michael Fox is suggesting, re-election 2020. I mean, you go back, George W. Bush launched his invasion of Iraq on March 20th, 2003, one year before the 2004 electoral campaign. Guess what? He got reelected. Ronald Reagan invaded Grenada in October of 83. The next year he ran for reelection. Guess what? He got elected. 
I remember his popularity went up, just like Maggie Thatcher's did. She had her little war in the Falklands, and boom, she went from being unpopular to being popular. I believe that Donald Trump is going to try and get us into a war with Venezuela. I think he's trying to set that up right now, and maybe even Nicaragua and Cuba, as he told this crowd on Monday in Florida. The days of socialism and communism are numbered not only in Venezuela, but in Nicaragua and Cuba as well. How deep is this rot? What will it take to break the billionaire greed hold on the United States? What's it going to take? I mean, my personal opinion is it's going to take a political revolution. It's going to take millions of Americans rising up and saying, enough. We have had enough. We've had enough of the phony promises like Donald Trump said he was going to raise taxes on billionaires and it would be terrible for him and people in his class when he lied through his teeth. We've had enough. Uh, you know, we've had enough of administrations going back 50 years being too timid to do things like Lyndon Johnson did with the Great Society or Franklin Roosevelt did with the New Deal. Enough. Billionaire Trump and billionaire Murdoch and billionaire Kochs and billionaire Adelson have basically taken over the Republican Party from the federal level all the way down to the local level, leading to more poison in our air and more poison in our water and more poverty in our country and an entirely corrupt government where you've got Republicans in charge from elected office to the Supreme Court and the White House. What's it going to take? How long will it take to break what Jefferson called rule by the rich? what James Madison warned us about, and restore some semblance of democracy to America? Or are we f too far gone? What do you think? I think we can come back from this. Actually, very optimistic. We have been through a civil war. We went through World War I. We went through World War II. We went through four major depressions, one during Andrew Jackson's presidency when he paid off the national debt. That threw us into the longest and deepest depression in the history of the United States. It lasted eight years. Then there was the Panic of 1846 that led to the Civil War. Then there was the Great Panic of 1897, 1896, 1897 that lasted right up through, through around 1901. And then, of course, the Great Depression of 1929 through right up to World War II. And now we've got the Great Recession of 2009. We've been through some serious stuff. We've killed each other in the Civil War, for example. And still, we come back. And I think we still can. But when you look at the Republican Party and what they're doing right now, for example, this mother came to the United States legally. She's from Guatemala. She came to the United States to the U.S.-Mexico border near San Luis, Arizona, and she presented herself at the official port of entry and said, I am fleeing violence in my home country. A member of the military had raped her and had threatened her life if she would not become essentially his sex slave. This is just like the local military. And so she and her three or four year old daughter fled. They fled to the United States. They presented themselves at the border to the authorities and said, we are here legally seeking asylum. That is all legal. We have laws that say that's how you do it. But the border patrol took her child away. They took her child away from her. And you read this story, I mean, this is just breathtaking. This Gabe Ortiz does some of the most brilliant reporting over at Daily Kos. And the headline here is, Mom says daughter can no longer fall asleep unless she holds her following separation at the border. Two and a half months they were separated. 
And this is from this legal claim that this woman is filing. She says, after nearly eight weeks of separation, immigration officials finally allowed her a two-minute phone call with her daughter. For eight and a half weeks, literally every day, she had been asking, where is my daughter? And they refused to tell her. For the entire eight weeks up to that point, I'm quoting from the legal document now, for the entire eight weeks up to that point, immigration officers had refused to tell her anything about her daughter, even though in every place that she had been detained, she repeatedly begged officers for the information. Turns out her daughter had been in a place called Hacienda del Sol in Arizona that was shut down because they found that the staffers were abusing the children. One of these privatized facilities that Trump you know, brought us. And finally, after eight weeks or after 10 weeks, she was reunited with her daughter. And her daughter was, had been emotionally tormented, was only capable of giving one word answers to her questions. During that one phone call she had two weeks before they were reunited, two minutes into the phone call, Two minutes into the phone call, the little girl started to cry and the social worker hung up the phone, said, that's it. This was, again, from the legal document, this was the only time that the Department of Homeland Security allowed her to talk to her daughter during the eight and a half weeks that the government forced them to be apart. This child is now so severely traumatized, she cannot sleep unless, she cannot fall asleep unless her mother is holding her. Not just in the same room, holding her. And when they walk outside, when she walks outside, her daughter is fearful and asked to return to the house immediately because she is terrified that they're going to grab her again. She's afraid to go out of the house. This is a three or four year old. This is obscene. This is what Donald Trump and Mike Pence and Kristen Nielsen and, and, and the whole bunch of them, Kelly saying, oh, this is going to deter these people from... This is the poison that has been injected into the bloodstream of our country. It's being done by billionaire Donald Trump. It's being supported by billionaire Rupert Murdoch. And these guys and the entire Republican Party is supporting this. And they're all being maintained in office by billionaires like Sheldon Adelson and Robert Mercer and the Koch brothers. How much longer is this poison going to continue to circulate in the bloodstream of our country? What's it going to take? for Americans to rise up and say, enough already. We are no longer going to be lied to by these Republicans. We are no longer going to vote for these hustlers and scam artists. What's it going to take? Tim in Beaverton, Oregon. Hey, Tim. It's amazing. You know, the only national emergency that we have is the Trump administration. That's the national emergency. It's just scary stuff every day. It, Something comes over <laughs> over the news that should be putting that guy in handcuffs and chains, which is terrible. But, you know, I've talked to you before about some of the statistics, and then you were very interested because you were unaware of them. The front page of the Oregonian says, I owe how much? There's many Americans now are going to be paying more taxes this year because of the new tax codes. Right. Not yeah. getting refunds. Back. That's right. Isn't and that and the people who are getting refunds, who for years and years, you know, they've kind of organized their taxes and they're withholding right. so that they, they always end up with a couple thousand bucks at the beginning of the next year. They're getting nothing. And some of them are having nothing. to pay. 
and the average is $1,200 a year, so basically $100 a month. That's going to make a dramatic difference in their lives, isn't it? It's ridiculous. Yeah. And a statistic I gave you when I was on the radio with you about two weeks ago that you were really surprised about, it's actually gone up. There's an article that was originally by Heather Long in the Washington Post, but it was in the Wednesday Oregonian. Mm-hmm. Seven million auto purchasers are three months behind in their car payments because yeah. of predatory lending rates, just like they did with the housing industry. Right. Yeah, we talked about that on, on the air here. The yeah. one caveat to that, Tim, and, that, and I don't know the answer to the question, but I do know that I learned this in particular when we lived in Washington, D.C. for the first six years we were there, we didn't have a car, and so I used Uber a fair amount. And a lot of people were going out and, you know, people who basically didn't have anything, they, they didn't have a job, they were going out and buying a brand new car or even a used car and getting an Uber gig and right. then in many cases, and I heard this from a number of Uber drivers, they weren't making enough money to cover their car payments. So exactly. What the, I, even the expenses for the car, they couldn't do. That's right. So what I'm wondering, I mean, you know, yes, we have uh, the 7 million people, it's never been that high before in the history of the United States, who are more than 90 days late on their car payments. Question in my mind is, is that a sign of an economy that's sagging, you know, of a crisis in the economy, or is that a sign of a lot of people who bought into the, you two can get rich being an Uber driver and got screwed by it? Well, it's a combination of both because it, it's, the magnitude is very high. But what you have to understand is these predatory lenders are going after people, and they have to be based on these, these phony credit scores and so forth, which is what the housing industry did. Yep. You know what's really ironic? They're giving uh, Trump a lot of people credit for the great economy we have. The two key features that the Obama administration turned the economy around with the housing industry and the auto industry. Yep. The Republicans were running on a platform to let the auto industry go bankrupt, if you remember that. I remember it well. He turned that around completely. Yeah, and then, the and then you had the four closure king, Steve Mnuchin, who Kamala Harris could have put him in prison. And, you know, right. looking back on it, boy, she really should have. And now he's the Secretary of the Treasury. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Got a couple of things about Eisenhower and Carter and Reagan. A lot of people don't realize that Carter was interested in green technology almost 50 years ago. Oh, yeah. He put solar panels on the White House, and then when Reagan got in, what did he do? He took them down. The Democrats appropriated almost $2 billion for cleanup in that era. Can you imagine if they would have continued to keep that program going from 45 years ago, the situation we would be in? And when Eisenhower got elected, what he did, if you look at some of his campaign speeches, he said, what would you rather do, spend millions of dollars on battleships or the U.S. economy and the infrastructure? It turned the world around, basically, is what it did. Yeah. My dad was U.S. Army. I was born on an Army base. He was able to stay in the Army, retire. He was a disabled veteran, go get the GI loan to go back to school, got a good civilian job, and bought his first house for $10,000. That's what made this country great, and people just don't understand it. Yeah, that's the story of my family. That's the story of Louise's family. Her dad was the first person in his family to ever go to college. He did it on the GI Bill. He ended up the assistant attorney general for the state of Michigan. You know, my, my dad retired from the Army, and the base gave him a civilian job on the base. That's how good he was. What he did, you know? That's great. That's great. Those are amazing things, you know. That yeah. Just don't... And this is how a country can work until Reagan comes along and the Republicans get in charge and the billionaires take over and the Supreme Court makes it all possible. It's all it's it's crazy. Tim, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. And thanks for listening to us there in Beaverton, Oregon. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. By the way, heads up, my new book, The Hidden History of Guns in the Second Amendment, is now available on Amazon.
My friends at X-Chair are at it again, constantly tinkering to make an already superior product even better so you can work in even more comfort and be that much more productive. Now you can enhance your X-Chair's performance and protect your floors with incredible X-Wheel blade casters. These urethane wheels are driven by butter smooth, whisper quiet ball bearings and are built to last. As if the X-Chair isn't comfortable enough, now you can add a set of X-Wheels and take your performance to the next level. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can take your comfort and productivity into the stratosphere by getting yourself an X-Chair. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, xchairtom.com. Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is Don't Label Me, An Incredible Conversation for Divided Times by Urshad Manji. This is from Chapter 2. It's titled Our Division Problem. Math teachers tell us that to solve a division problem, we must find the common denominator. From its birth, this nation's common denominator has been diversity. I'm not a fan of that word, a neighbor recently sniped. It divides people. Well, that's one slant on diversity. The word itself comes from the Latin to turn aside, or as some take it, to splinter and separate. But nature would disagree with that interpretation. Every afternoon, Lil, you meander in the park. Here, diversity is the lubricant of a humming engine. Do you breathe in just one aroma? How about two? Five? That's some head tilt you've got going, Lily Bean. She's got a bunch of rescue dogs, and she's writing this book to them, FYI. You're catching on to my crazy talk, aren't you? It's bananas to isolate and enumerate the smells enveloping you. None of them on its own captures the magic of the intermingling whole. You're gaga about the park exactly for its kaleidoscope of scents that jostle with each other and sometimes get up your nose. See where I'm going with this? Diversity itself doesn't divide. It's what we do with diversity that splits societies apart or stitches them together. The paradox is, to do diversity honestly, that we can't be labeling all of diversity's critics as bigots. You disagree, Lil? Well, you're entitled to your opinion, but you haven't let me explain mine. Welcome to the real world, you say? Well, this isn't exactly the real world, is it? You're a conversing canine, for God's sake. Okay, okay, you're right, enough of my defensiveness. Getting my backup won't help you hear me. But if I'm going to work on me, then I need assurance of a fair hearing from you. Deal? Note to self, never expect the mother-daughter relationship to be a picnic in the park. As I was about to explain, Lil, there's more than one way to look at a situation. Some people oppose diversity because they are bigots. Others, though, are skeptical of diversity because of how we, its champions, practice it. We're fixated on labeling, and labeling drains diversity of its unifying potential. Since the founding of the U.S. Republic, Americans have extolled the idea of unity in diversity. E pluribus unum, out of many, one, became a gallant motto for the union of the original 13 colonies. No argument, Lil, the colonists were themselves colonizers of native people, of black people, of women and of poor white men. I acknowledge that such labels didn't drop from the clear blue sky. These groups bore the brunt of keeping the United States united. So I'll keep it real too. E pluribus unum has always been an uphill battle. Americans fought a gruesome civil war over the obscenity of slavery, whose promoters reduced human beings to labels. A century earlier, drawing unity from diversity proved to be onerous business of a different sort. It demanded that ardent revolutionaries check their egos. Just before voting on the Constitution, the framers listened to a letter from Benjamin Franklin. He, in turn, had somebody read it out loud. 
Addressing each signatory as if speaking to him in person, Franklin confessed in the letter, quote, I do not entirely approve of this convention at present, but, sir, I am not sure I shall never approve it. For having lived long, I have experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions, even on important subjects, which I once thought right but found to be otherwise. Take a moment to digest this, Lily. A world-class rebel states publicly that he doesn't know it all, that he's missing something obvious to others, that he might be wrong. Was Ben Franklin written off as a wimp? Nope. His fellow framers knew the value of humility in making the impossible happen. For America's revolutionaries, breaking free from a British despot would be the relatively simple part. Much harder would be replacing despotism with something democratic and doable. The framers' solution? To enshrine and institutionalize diversity of viewpoint. Their logic? In a republic of vastly different regions, cultures, peoples, and perspectives, there's nation-building power in airing disagreements. Diversity of opinion as a common denominator. Sheer genius, Lil. In Why Societies Need Dissent, the legal scholar Cass Sunstein describes this funky formula as, quote, the framer's greatest innovation. Americans, I'm thrilled to tell you, still aspire to that vision. In June 2018, the Harris Poll released findings about what unites and what divides our country. Among the factors that unite, being open to alternative viewpoints. But the deflating reality is people generally mean that other people should be open to their viewpoints. Today, living the revolutionary ideal seems a non-starter, and for various reasons. Hands down, the most controversial reason is the changing makeup of America. It's a landmine of fraught labels, frail identities, and engulfing emotions. Can we talk about it? In this country, brown, black, and multiracial babies outnumber white babies. Beyond our major cities, small towns have started to mix it up. Take Storm Lake, Iowa. The editor of its community newspaper estimates that, quote, 88% of children in our elementary schools are children of color. We speak 21 languages, end quote. Sarah Smarsh, a journalist from Kansas, says that in the past 10 years alone, and thanks to the rise of agricultural agribusiness, her farming community has become home to workers from Mexico, Central America, and the Middle East. That's a bundle of change in a flash of time. Thank God America has a history of muddling through. Problem is, Americans can't depend on the past to predict that the future will be tickety-boo. Sure, some prejudice has subsided as successive waves of migrants have integrated. And she continues from there. The book, Don't Label Me, by Irshad Manji. Tom Harbin here with you. Um, somebody tweeted to me, and I'm sorry I don't have it right in front of me right now, an excerpt from Andrew McCabe's book, the former director of the FBI, or acting director of the FBI, who is now on book tour and is talking about how Trump might be a Russian asset, blah, blah, blah. And I don't mean to minimize that. I mean, it's just that, all this other insane stuff. This is from page 136 of McCabe's new book. He was in a meeting in the Oval Office with Donald Trump. And this is a quote. Then the president talked about Venezuela. That's the country we should be going to war with, Trump said. They have all that oil, and they're right in our back door. So this was last year, a year and a half ago, in the White House, in the Oval Office, Donald Trump saying, hey, let's plan on going to war with Venezuela. And now, you know, speculation that this is going to be his 2020 re-election strategy is to start a war in our hemisphere. Meanwhile, a lot of the people who work at CNN are really upset about this. I tweeted out a, uh, an article about it 
The headline over in the Daily Beast, CNN staffers demoralized by hiring of GOP operative to oversee 2020 coverage. The person who is going to be supervising the election coverage on CNN from next week going all the way through the election in November is a woman by the name of Sarah Isker, I-S-G-U-R, I assume that's how it's pronounced, and she's a Republican operative. She was uh, an advisor to Ted Cruz. She was an advisor to Mitt Romney. She was the deputy campaign manager for Carly Fiorina. And she was the spokesperson for Jeff Sessions, the attorney general's Department of Justice. And she is going to, quote, guide the TV and digital coverage of the 2020 election, occasionally offering on-screen analysis. This is the person CNN put in charge of this? A nakedly Republican operative? Seriously? I, I mean, I'm, I'm just shocked. You would think that for something as sensitive as election coverage, that they would at the very least get somebody who, you know, actually is a journalist, actually understands reporting. Well, I, I, I need not rant further. I think that that's, I think that's pretty much it. Right now, I am so happy to have on the air, on the line with us, Ed Asner, Phil Proctor, and Sam Joseph. There is a new play that is being performed this weekend in Newport, California for tickets, nhhsdrama.com. We'll tweet this out as well, and then godhelpus.net is the website. And Ed Asner is playing God and moderating a discussion between a liberal and a conservative. And I've got all three of you on the line. I'm going to start with Ed. Ed, you literally, as you know, were the first guest 16 years ago on this program. The first guest I ever had was Ed Asner. And it's so great to have you back with us. Ed, welcome. Then you deserted me, you rotten thing. <laughs> then I deserted you. I, I hope you don't think that. I mean, I, <laughs> no, I don't. I, don't. I love you, So you're playing God. Tell us about the play. Well, it's, uh, the God is somewhat comical. Are you hearing me? Yes. Yeah. All right, and he finds a couple. He brings together a couple who were a very tight couple at one time. She being a right-winger, he being a left-winger, to discuss various topics of the day. And in the course of their discussion, uh, written by these two writing geniuses that you've got on the program, uh-huh. uh, God finds the art of compromise is totally non-existent. He tries to bring them together and then finally finds a solution to the problem. Fascinating. It's, it sounds like a marvelous play. Phil Proctor's also on the line with us. Phil was one of the people who got me through my teenage years as, uh, <laughs> as one of the founding members of the Firesign Theater, a group that I am still quoting Firesign Theater skits all the time. And, uh, you know, I've known Phil for years. Welcome to the program. Are you playing the liberal or the conservative in this play? Well, I'm actually not performing in this play. We, Sam and I co-authored it and designed it in such a way that each venue can use good actors from the local pot, if you will, mm-hmm. and perform the play uh, from podiums, reading the material, acting the material. So they, the rehearsal period is shorter, and Ed is the anchor for all of this. So it gives other actors an opportunity to approach this material and bring their own unique personalities to it. 
That's marvelous. And and Ed Asner is God. I mean, that's 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 just absolutely perfect. Sam Joseph typecasting, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> Sam Joseph, you helped write this. And tell us about yourself and what brought you to this. And and where did this idea come from? Well, I'm sort of a political chunky, and and Phil and I have written a children's book together, and he also co-starred in a film, uh, Window of Opportunity, that's on your show with John Densmore and Phil a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And basically, yes, it is typecasting. Uh, The show has been going around the country, so we play in different cities. Uh, We had 900 people when we did it in Idaho, of all places. Wow. You asked me a question, I forgot. Tell me that Well, again. where did the idea come from? It just seems to me that things are more tribal and ugly than they've ever been. And uh, In fact, I wrote something for Daily Coast recently about why it's so difficult for people who don't like Trump to accept his supporters, even though we could more accept people who supported Reagan and Bush. Right. And it just seems to me that we are so tribal and so distant from what is reality and what is truth that... It, we need to find a way to talk to each other, even if we disagree. Be together on the project, because we were, even as we were writing a children's book, we were debating these issues that are tearing us apart. And right. we said, we got to write about this. we got to yeah. see if we can find some solution, some, some way to reveal to people that there is a possibility that we can compromise. Yeah. And that's where the play came from. That's fascinating. That's Phil Proctor uh, you know, adding to what Sam Joseph was saying. Ed Asner, as, as God, you're the person who is performing in every one of these cities. And so you're out there and you're interacting with the people. What's your sense of the political zeitgeist of America? You and I have talked politics you know, on the air and off the air for years, but it's been a while since we've talked. I'm curious your take on where our country is at. I don't think we've talked since Trump became president. Well, I'm, I'm very worried that being so anti-Trump as I am and, and everyone around me, that I look at Trump supporters as being rare fossils of a strange genre, genera. I I do not understand these people. I understand the primal urges which led them to say hurrah to Trump, but then when they actually fall into lockstep, I then say how can they continue walking in lockstep when they see the the perfidy that he creates, and and yet they do. Uh, so I have great fear for our country. I'm inclined to wonder, will it take a second civil war to finally find out who we are and where we are? God forbid. And who, who will win if we have it? I think that's... This is Sam? This is Sam again. Yeah, I, I think that's part of the reason we wrote this. Look, when Phil and I were working on it, I sent it to a, an old dear friend of mine who's a Republican and his wife, and we got notes from them because yeah, we wanted right. to make sure, even though all three of us are quite progressive, that the conservative point of view was presented honestly and respectfully. And we've done that, I believe. I think most people who've seen it say, yeah, it does show both sides and both sides' arguments pretty uh, clearly. That's, that's and this is Phil again. Well, I want to add that we also are regularly updating the play yes. for, for each performance in various parts of the country. We have to stay on top of the fast-breaking news, and I emphasize the word breaking, uh, in order to make sure that the play is pertinent and speaks to everybody. Remember, the play is called God Help Us. God 
God help us. <laughs> that was the motivation, again, yeah. that caused us to get, put our heads together and try to, to write a play that could, could uh, emphasize both our differences and our togethernesses in this strange uh, cultural society we live in now. Ed, with Ed. Second play, hello. Ed, speak up, Ed. Follow that up with a second play titled, Is Anybody Out There? In response to God Help Us. And then the title of the second play would be, Is Anybody Out There? <laughs> uh, there questioning go. whether we uh, can really reach out to God if he exists. Yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be a fascinating one. I am uh, hopeful that you guys come to Portland so I can see this thing. And uh, as, actually, we may be coming to Portland. I'm pretty sure. Oh, that that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Hey, well, when you do, you know, come on in studio. Ed Asner, Phil Proctor, Sam Joseph. The website is GodHelpUs.net. The play is God Help Us. Uh, Ed Asner playing God. Check it out. It's in uh, Newport, California. This uh, this week. Type in Ed Asner in Newport and Google, and you'll find it. There you go. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Our book for the Tom Hartman Book Club today is by Lanny Ganeer. It's The Tyranny of the Majority, Fundamental Fairness in Representative Democracy. This is from the first chapter, The Tyranny of the Majority. When I was eight years old, I was a brownie. I was especially proud of my uniform, which represented a commitment to good citizenship and good deeds. But one day, when my brownie group staged a hat-making contest, I realized that uniforms are only as honorable as the people who wear them. The contest was rigged. The winner was assisted by her milliner mother, who actually made the winning entry in full view of all the participants. At the time, I was too young to be able to change the rules, but I was old enough to resign, which I promptly did. To me, fair play means that the rules encourage everyone to play. They should reward those who win, but they must be acceptable to those who lose. The central theme of my academic writing is that not all rules lead to elemental fair play. Some even commonplace rules work against it. The professional milliner competing with amateur brownies stands as an example of rules that are patently rigged or patently subverted. Yet sometimes even when rules are perfectly fair in form, they serve in practice to exclude particular groups from meaningful participation. When they don't encourage everyone to play, or when, over the long haul, they do not make the losers feel as good about the outcome as the winners, they can seem as unfair as the milliner who makes the winning hat for her daughter. Sometimes, too, we construct rules that force us to be divided into winners and losers when we might have otherwise joined together. This idea was cogently expressed by my son Nicholas when he was four years old, far exceeding the thoughtfulness of his mother when she was an eight-year-old brownie. While I was writing one of my law journal articles, Nicholas and I had a conversation about voting prompted by a Sesame Street magazine exercise. The magazine pictured six children. Four children had raised their hands because they wanted to play tag. 
too had their hands down because they wanted to play hide and seek. The magazine asked its readers to count the number of children whose hands were raised and then decide what game the children would play. Nicholas quite realistically replied, they'll play both. First they'll play tag, then they'll play hide and seek. Despite the magazine's rules, he was right. To children, it's natural to take turns. The winner may get to play first or more often, but even the loser gets something. His was a positive sum solution that many adult rulemakers ignore. The traditional answer to the magazine's problem would have been a zero-sum solution. The children, all the children, will play tag and only tag. As a zero-sum solution, everything is seen in terms of I win, you lose. The conventional answer relies on winner-take-all majority rule in which the tag players as the majority win the right to decide for all the children what game to play. The hide-and-seek preference becomes irrelevant. The numerically more powerful majority choice simply subsumes minority preferences. In the conventional case, the majority that rules gains all the power, and the minority that loses gets none. For example, two years ago, Brother Rice High School in Chicago held two senior proms. It was not planned that way. Prom committee at Brother Rice, a boys' Catholic high school, expected just one prom when it hired a disc jockey, picked a rock band, and selected music for the prom by consulting student preferences. Each senior was asked to list his three favorite songs. The band would play the songs that appeared most frequently on the lists. Seems attractively democratic. But Brother Rice is predominantly white, and the prom committee was all white. And that's how they got two proms. The black seniors at Brother Rice felt so shut out by the democratic process that they organized their own prom. As one black student put it, for every vote we had, there were eight votes for what they wanted. With us being in the minority, we were always outvoted. It's as if we don't count. Some embittered white seniors saw things differently. They complained that the black students should have gone along with the majority. The majority makes the decision, they said. That's the way things work. In a way, both groups were right. From the white students' perspective, this was ordinary decision-making. To the black students, majority rule sent the message, we don't count, is the way it works for minorities. In a racially divided system, majority rule may be perceived as majority tyranny. That's a large claim, and I don't rest my case for it solely on the actions of the prom committee in one Chicago high school. I first consider the ideal of majority rule itself, particularly as reflected in the writings of James Madison and other founding members of our republic. These early Democrats explored the relationship between majority rule and democracy. James Madison warned, if a majority be united by a common interest, the rights of the minority will be insecure. The tyranny of the majority, according to Madison, requires safeguards to protect, quote, one part of the society against the unjust injustice of the other part, end quote. For Madison, majority tyranny represented the great danger to our early constitutional democracy. Although the American Revolution was fought against the tyranny of the British monarch, it soon became clear there was another tyranny to be avoided, the accumulation of all powers in the same hands. Madison warned whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. As another colonist suggested in papers published in Philadelphia, we've been so long habituated to a jealousy of tyranny from monarchy and aristocracy that we have yet to learn the dangers of it from democracy. Despotism had to be opposed, whether it came from kings, lords, or the people. Lanny Ganier's Tyranny of the Majority. Tom Hartman here with you. Okay, so the, that, that conversation with God and his two writers, with Ed Asner and Phil and, and Sam, raises an interesting question. 
Have you successfully had a conversation about issues with a conservative where you arrived at a consensus? And I have them on this show all the time, you know, d debates and discussion. I rarely achieve consensus. <laughs> you know, that's why I'm looking forward to seeing the play. This, this sounds fascinating. So anyhow, just toss that out there. And if, if you've had that experience, give us a shout and share it with us. You know, what was the consensus you found with a conservative? Wendy, in uh, Pataskala, Ohio. Am I saying that right, Wendy? Yeah, you got it right this time, Tom. Hey, what's up? Well, you know, uh, I heard you um, ask the question about consensus with a conservative. So I once had a very odd conversation uh, with a Trumpy. In fact, he was in my house because he was installing my floors. And I didn't even know if I was going to make it through with this guy because I couldn't even listen to your show because he was offended by anything that was not or well anything that he would have said was liberal i guess so yeah. i couldn't listen to the radio i couldn't watch tv or anything while he was in my house but i was so determined to get those floors installed but at one point you know i i guess i started asking him about himself and about his life and how he got to be doing the type of work he does and slowly he really did start telling me about himself and about his hobbies and he one of the things he, he liked was photography and he loved nature and he loved going to parks every weekend he would go to the park and take photographs these beautiful photographs and then i don't know at one point somehow we got on the topic of whales dying off or something or there was a problem at that time with the beaching and i said to him you know every time i hear about something like that it just breaks my heart and he looked at me i could not believe it he said i feel the same way you know i mean i actually found this connection with this this trumpy over nature and how much he really cares about nature. And I was thinking, wow, that's really a crossroads for yeah. the different politics is, is nature. Because I think Trumpies or conservatives, you know, we're all Americans in that respect, that we all love the environment, you know, when it gets down to it. And, and we enjoy things like going to the parks. I mean, that's something everybody seems to share, I think. Yeah. And so I, I understood then that the environment's really important to him. So it's probably important to a lot of Trumpies and conservatives. And to me, oh, yeah. that's something that we should be playing up more. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, everybody cares. Yeah, and Nixon figured that out, and he did his whole phony, uh, I mean, you know, while in the background he was, you know, vetoing implementation legislation for the EPA, and he was gutting the EPA, gutted their uh, budget in the second year, stuff like that. But, but he talked a good line about the environment, because even Republicans have to breathe air and drink water, and they get it. Wendy, thank you for the call. Marty in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Hey, Marty, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Enjoy your show as always. Let me be a little bit of the devil's advocate with you. Your question earlier was, are we going to have this revolution? Are we going to turn this thing around? I don't think so. You, you can give me some hope here today. The big difference I see in America right now, from, and I'm 75, is that we do not have a viable, responsible fourth estate. There are no more Walter Cronkite, Eric Severides, Howard K. Smith, David Brinkley's. These same billionaires that you rail on that have bought this country, and you're absolutely correct, they own the major networks, the news sources, the newspapers, and the TVs. I just noticed over the last few decades this absolute dirge of good, truthful, effective news on corporate media, including my local newspaper, the Kansas City Star, owned by McClatchy. Right. It's just some watered-down version. It's corporate-filtered, 
And my concern is, Tom, I mean, uh, people are no better than the information and the news that they get. We've got Fox News today, which literally has poisoned and made delusional of our society. I talk to people, they're delusional. I mean, I just don't know how you get around that and be effective as a citizen. You know, Thomas Jefferson, that's why, that's why he promoted education so strong. He realized that our democracy was so dependent upon an educated and informed electorate. Yes. That's what concerns me, Tom. That was his phrase. Thank you. Marty, I, I share your concerns in all those regards. I wrote a long opinion piece about this that really didn't go very far, but it was published on uh, Salon and Truthdig and Alternet maybe three weeks ago about, you know, why is it the television networks have panels, for example? Why is it you tune into CNN or MSNBC, and instead of having a reporter like, you know, Eric Severide used to read the news, right? And it would be one story, and then another story, and then another story, and there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, right? You would hear the news in a half hour or an hour, and now they'll pick four or five stories for the entire hour, and then they'll have three commentators who will come in and offer their opinions on those stories. Usually it's the sanitized, uh, you know, corporate friendly pablum, basically. And I agree with you. I think that, you know, the, the great hope that we all had was that the Internet would help us cut through that. But now that we see that the Internet is being sliced and diced and now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality, you know, it's, it's getting even weirder. But things like, you know, you've got uh, really great progressive websites like Alternet out there, right? Google stopped spidering Alternet. And when they did that, Alternet's revenue collapsed. I mean, they nearly went out of business and they ended up getting sold, you know, to a good progressive. But still, it used to be a great nonprofit website. And there's others like that. So we can't even depend on the Internet. At a certain level, I share your, I absolutely share your concern. In fact, I could even give you examples that would amplify it. That said, every time we have seen in the United States inequality reach these kinds of levels, it happened just before the Civil War, it happened in the 1840s, it happened in the 1890s, it happened in the 1920s. Every single time that's happened, it has been followed by a major economic crash, and that has been followed by typically a war, and that has been followed by a massive progressive reboot of America. Back before Franklin Roosevelt became president, you had basically two people publishing newspapers in the United States, you know, William Randolph Hearst and, oh, what was his name? The, the, the other guy who was the, the newspaper baron, the so-called yellow newspapers, because they both published the cartoon about Yellow Dan. And FDR fixed that, you know, to a large extent with local ownership rules and things like that. I mean, I think that we are on the edge of a revolution. And it, it, like I said, I, I opened the show with this. Essentially, we're going to go one of two ways. We're either going to get a whole lot better really fast, and there will probably be a period of severe dislocation that precedes that, because that's typically what happens, you know, like a giant stock market crash, or maybe Trump gets us in a war with Venezuela or something like that, which I'm, I'm increasingly thinking he's trying to do as his reelection strategy. But whatever, that crisis then becomes the precipitating factor for the Reformation, or that crisis flips us into full-blown fascism, and we're going to have to relearn the lessons that Germany learned 70 years ago. You know, I think that there's enough of us who are woke that that's not going to happen, but I'm, I'm not yet willing to entirely bet on it. So I don't know if I walked you off the ledge, Marty, or not. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm off the ledge. I'm ready okay. to go back to work. Okay. I'm, I'm, I appreciate what you do every day. For okay, thank you so much. You. Good talking yeah. to you, Marty, thank, and thanks a lot yeah, for listening care. to Bye-bye. us Bye-bye. on SiriusXM. I appreciate it. You're listening to Tom Hartman.
I've been telling you how much I love Harry's products for years. I won't shave with anything else. Their close shave and smooth, comfortable glide is amazing. And Harry's delivers right to your door at a price your wallet will love too. Harry's doesn't do gimmicks, you know, no vibrating heads, flex balls, or handles that look like spaceships. Who needs that stuff? Harry's gives you a simple, clean design with quality, durable blades, all at a fair price. Replacement cartridges are just $2 each half the price of Gillette Fusion Pro Shield. And Harry's Blades come with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love your shave or get a full refund. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners of the Tom Hartman program. New customers get $5 off a trial set from Harry's with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get a razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and travel cover, all for just 3 bucks, plus free shipping when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. Go to harrys.com today and use the code TOM to claim your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. That's harrys.com, code TOM. Cheryl in Dallas, Texas. Hey, Cheryl, what's on your mind today? Do you think that we're seeing this incident or this possible war in Venezuela by Trump because we never prosecuted the other criminals, you know, like Reagan and Nixon and Bush? Yes. 41 or 42. I think we need to do something about that. We're going to end up every time a, a president decides he wants to high ratings or wants to be reelected, he's going to start a war. Or at least every Republican president has done that basically right. since Richard Nixon. I completely agree with you. And Ford pardoning Nixon presaged George Herbert Walker Bush pardoning you know Reagan's cronies, and then that essentially uh, Clinton didn't pardon anybody out of the Bush administration, but he failed to prosecute them, George W. Bush administration, for the war crimes that they committed and for the lies that they told America. And basically, no president has been held accountable since Nixon, and I think that's and wrong. I absolutely I, agree with you. Yes, I, I think we need to do that. Democrats need to pursue that and republicans need to uh stop doing it yeah know? yeah it would be a good idea cheryl thank you very well thank said Tom Harbin here with you. I mentioned the major pieces of the New York Times article. Cody Fenwick wrote a great summary for Alternet titled, Here Are Seven Bombshells from the New York Times' Devastating Report of Trump's War on the Investigations into Him. Trump, of course, this morning hysterically, frantically tweeting out, The New York Times is the enemy of the people! Because they've outed what he's doing. And here are the seven points that Cody identified. I read the article in the New York Times yesterday. I think he did a great summary of these, so I'm just going to quote from at least his high points, and I'll riff on them a little bit. Number one, Trump pressured Whitaker, his acting attorney general, to install a crony in New York. Now, this is the Southern District of New York, which is where the, the prosecutors there, the federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, are going after Michael Cohen right now. And Trump appointed a new federal prosecutor in New York. President comes in, he gets to appoint federal prosecutors. And this guy is a Trump loyalist. And that's not the guy who's prosecuting Cohen. And so Trump says to Whitaker, hey, can you, can you call up this guy in New York and get him in? You know, th I mean, this is just like, wrong, right? I mean, you pick your prosecutors. This is mafia stuff, number one. Number two, the attorneys for the president, Donald Trump's attorneys, actually had conversations with both Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn about the possibility that they could get pardons if they would just hang on long enough, which apparently Paul Manafort did. 
This is apparently still Paul Manafort's game plan. He thinks Trump's going to pardon him. Obviously, Michael Cohen has given up on that. He's speaking out and speaking poorly of Trump. Number three, even though Michael Flynn resigned voluntarily, and he resigned because basically it had come out that he was, at the very least, had lied about his associations with Russia in a way that could subject him to blackmail, at the very worst, might actually be an agent of a foreign government. And in fact, we know he was uh, in the case of Turkey. And whether he was with Russia or not, we're going to find out as the investigation continues. But that's why Flynn left. Trump had nothing to do with it. But then Trump told Sean Spicer, his spokesperson, to go out and lie about this. And Trump himself lied about that. That's number three. Number four, these are things we learned in the New York Times piece. It's really worth reading. Number four, White House lawyers warned that Sean Spicer was spreading lies and that this is a dangerous thing. It may even be a criminal thing, but it's definitely a, a dangerous thing. Number five, Trump claims that Rod Rosenstein told him that Michael Cohen's investigation had nothing to do with him. Right? Trump says that the essentially acting attorney general, because, because uh, uh, Sessions had recused himself, that Rod Rosenstein, Trump says, oh, Rosenstein told me that that Cohen investigation has nothing to do with it. That was a total lie, right up front, just a lie. Number six, Representative Matt Goetz, Representative Jim Jordan, these hardcore right-wing fossil fuel billionaire funded Tea Party Republicans and other Trump allies decided way back in July of 2017 that they were going to work to undermine the Mueller investigation. These Republicans, the Mueller investigation into whether a foreign power has corrupted the government of the United States. These Republicans decided to undermine that investigation, being led by Matt Goetz and Jim Jordan. And then number seven, Donald Trump has gone after Mueller and the Russia investigation more than 1,100 times in public. That's something that you just don't do. This is the rot in the Republican Party. Liz in Redmond, Washington. Hey, Liz, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Yeah, did you hear about the billboard put up in Times Square accusing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, 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 yeah. For the um, Amazon pullout. Yeah. yeah the, oh, you were? Oh, yeah, Robert Mercer okay. apparently paid for it. Uh, she actually right. retweeted it and, and said, this is, this is what we're up against, you know, billionaires who are feeding us, uh, shoveling us BS. Right. And wasn't it, was it yesterday or day before yesterday you were talking to a woman, um, was it Job Creators Network that yes. she was with? Yes. Okay, yeah, they're the ones that, that put the billboard up. Oh, they are? Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. It's paid for by Mercer. I saw that. I, I was reading that in the article. The article's in the commondreams.org. Yeah. Um, but I just thought I just thought it was interesting, and I, and I was wondering if you'd heard about it. Yeah, I, I oh, did. I, I saw it this morning. I saw the, tw the tweet this morning, and it was okay. pretty. What, what is so cool about AOC is that she fights back. You know, I mean, it's been yeah. a long time since there was a Democrat who fought back. Yeah. And, yeah, that's great. And she has just not taken it. She absolutely has not taken it. Liz, thank you so much for the call. And, and yes, this, this actually happened. You know, Amazon is pulling out of New York because New Yorkers don't want them there. And they don't want the, the billions in tax breaks and whatnot to go to Amazon. They just don't, you know, they just don't want it happening. And so, so a billionaire puts a billboard up in Times Square that says, well, here's how many jobs you're going to lose, and it's all because of Ale Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or words to that effect, or implications to that effect. And she tweets it out and says, 
Look at this. Isn't this amazing? Look at who's paying for this. Wow. On the line with us is the author of Sideswiped, former Congressman Bob Day. Bob, welcome back. Well, thank you, Tom. So uh, what's at the top of the hit parade for you? What, what do you see in the news today that you think is of great consequence? Well, talking about money, now not just the $5.9 million that Bernie Sanders has raised, but the Fortune 500 companies, the big, big money. Have, I don't know if anybody's called in on that with the regulatory reports. No. If you've had anything. Okay, the Fortune 500 companies have begun to file their annual regulatory reports. And the pattern is emerging if you look at them yesterday when in the reports that are filed. And it's just a cursory report, but, you know, it can be dug into numbers-wise. So after the tax cut, uh, which was last year, there's an outsized number led by the giants of Amazon, GM, and Halliburton, who will owe zero or very little in 2018 U.S. income taxes or actually do a refund. And the reason I raise this, if, you, if people look at the report, this is always debated that X amount of people pay X amount of taxes. But if you look at uh, what the statistics say here and what the reports say, here, here are the numbers. General Motors is claiming a $104 million refund on an 11.8 billion profit in 2018. Goodyear is seeking 15 million in a refund of 693 million in profit. So they'll get, of course, their profit and the refund back. Halliburton will pay 19 million on 1.6 billion in profit. And then let me get to this one because of the debacle quote in New York uh, with Amazon, which, you know, of course, uh, AOC, they've put a billboard up against her, you know, et cetera. Well, the Mercer family has uh, apparently funded that, according right, to her right. tweet. Exactly. Okay, well, here, here's what it is, because they wanted a breakout there, of course, Amazon. Well, Amazon has its second straight year of owing zero tax. In 2017, Amazon filed for $137 million refund on $5.6 billion in profit. And uh, so, you know, Amazon's uh, added again, then add on top of what else they would get for their headquarters, and uh, they had a good year. Well, what this shows you is that in 1976, when the Supreme Court said in Buckley versus Vallejo that owning politicians, spending money to support politicians or to support political positions on the part of billionaires is simply free speech protected by the First Amendment. And then two years later in the first National Bank versus Bilotti case, they said, oh, we're extending that free speech human right to corporations as well. So, you know, by the end of 1978, leading right into the Reagan revolution, the Supreme Court legalized bribery of politicians, of wholly owned politicians, right? And that's what we've got. These politicians, it's so cheap. I'm guessing that most of these companies probably spent 10, 20, 30, 50 million dollars at the most buying politicians to get laws written that would give them hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in tax-free profits or, or, or tax refunds. I mean, you're a former member of Congress. Is that how it wor- isn't that how it works? Well, sure, and here's the deviousness of it. You don't hear high-profile spending because they actually aren't having to spend that much to achieve what they want. So it's not like it shows up that they spent, you know, $150 million, et cetera, or one company spent 10 or $15 million. They combine resources, they combine power, and then they get what they want without actually having a high profile because, yeah. uh, you know, what we hear, well, the tax cut benefits the working people of America. Yeah, which we, which we know is BS, but, but my understanding is that um, that these days 
you can buy legislation with as little as a $30,000 campaign contribution to a member of Congress. Is that right? Well, I mean, uh, you know, there's different cases of political push and power, and I will tell you this, too. It comes at the leadership levels is even worse, because I had been part of meetings where if you went against somebody, they would stand up and say, let me tell you what's contributed to our caucus. So wow. if they give a member fifteen or 20000 but if they give the leadership team 150000 then the leadership team breathes down your neck. Yeah, and as you know, Ryan Zinke, I mean, you know, when he was, uh, his hearings to go into interior, he, he, when he was in Congress, he said, if you don't donate at least 10000 bucks, I'm not going to talk to you. All right. As I recall. Yeah, it was, and it's buying access into yeah. the system. Yeah, it really is. What, what else is up, Bob? Well, the uh, Mueller report, but also I wanted to mention, because, you know, I know you'll be, be talking about it, but uh, there's a person of interest, which is kind of fascinating. I have not heard this name before, and his name is David Giovannis, and he is tied to one of the oligarchs, uh, Oleg Deripaska, and mm -hmm. I'm sorry, my Russian is not that good, but he's tied to, uh, to the oligarch, and he goes back to 1990, and particularly 1996, on a trip to Moscow, for the Trump Corporation, for the Trump Tower. And the Senate, uh, it, it's becoming known now they are pursuing uh, this man. Uh, it doesn't say where he's at. I'm assuming he's Moscow-based. I'm assuming he's over there, but they want to talk to him. So I don't know if his name surfaced through the, the, the Mueller report or something, but, Tom, this is a name I have not heard of before. And, yeah. again, it, it's David Giovannis and the Senate uh, Intel Committee, uh, Senate investigators, I should say, are looking to, to find him and they want to talk to him. Which so the Senate Intel Committee is run by the Republicans. Are they actually starting to get serious about this? Well, it's gotten leaked out that they're looking for him, so I think it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, and, and Deripaska seems to be at the center of so much of this stuff. It's, uh, I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to learning more about it. Bob, thank you so much for the news today. I appreciate it. TalkMediaNews.com. Thank Thanks, Bob. Bob in Columbia, Missouri. Hey, Bob. I wanted to talk to you about Venezuela. You're right. It's the next angle that Trump and the Republicans are thinking to do exactly what you've been saying. Historically, it all lines up. Uh, the other thing is Barr. Barr was in 92. What you say about Christmas Day, I looked it up yesterday. And they don't let you look at the New York Times headline without paying for it. But there's a lot of other information that indicates exactly what occurred. And I remember it in real time, as do you. And I was outraged at yep. what was happening because they were kissing it off and letting it go and right in the you know that turbulent time around the holidays the new president's coming in yep. you understand and the democrats were outraged in congress anyway and such a shame that the clinton administration didn't really go after that but but you know that was that era of okay we're going to move on we're going to move forward but it was it was william barr it was bill barr who is currently our attorney general who in 1992 was attorney general and shut down the iran contra investigation by by recommending that Bush issue those six pardons. Bob, thanks for the call. We will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get back, and tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.